Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warmer than me welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chasley coming to you live this week from the World Economic Forum here in Davos, Switzerland. It is the first in-person winter weather since the pandemic began three long years ago. And I've got to say, perhaps I've forgotten slightly just how cold it can get here in the Swiss Alps in January, but I am glad to be back. And I'm reminded, too, of how crucial this conference can be in defrosting key dialogue on so many of the important issues we need to talk about. Call it the miracle of meeting. Today's main events in Davos include a strong show of solidarity for the people of Ukraine amid the unspeakable suffering they've endured during the Russian invasion. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Delivering a powerful warning here to delegates earlier today, saying, quote, we are facing the collapse of the world as we know it. The Ukraine war at the root of much of what we're discussing at Davos this year, of course, too, from Europe's energy crisis, the world's energy crisis, to worsening food insecurity and fears of a global recession that permeate many of the conversations on panels and, of course, behind the scenes, too. The theme is cooperation in a fragmented world, and we have to overcome underlying tensions in sectors like trade and technology in order to tackle existential crises like climate change. The head of the IMF warning here today, too, that fragmented trade, including protectionism, could cost up to 7% of global GDP. We'll discuss all these critical issues coming up on the show today with a number of really important guests. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger will be joining along with us to talk recession risks, semiconductor demand and the US move, of course, to subsidise domestic chip production and Europe, don't forget, plus recession fears in the corporate sector. Robin Vince, the CEO of BNY Mellon, discusses the mood among executives during this time of slowing growth and rising interest rates. Also, some applause, please. Actor and producer Idris Elba and his activist and conservationist wife Sabrina, two of this year's recipients of the WEF Crystal Awards, will join us later to discuss their work helping to alleviate food insecurity amid war and, of course, worsening climate change. All of us here at Davos also keeping one eye across the action on global markets. US stocks set to open lower on this holiday-shortened trading week. Europe softer too after a mostly lower Asian handover. The key data during the session, China reporting today that its economy grew 3% in 2022, a huge drop from the 8.4% the year before as COVID lockdowns weighed. And for the first time in more than 60 years, China's population declined last year. Just one more factor in the slower growth narrative here at Davos. More coming up on China 2 in just a moment. But hey, second applause, please. Larry Madero joins us I'm now. applauding for hey. myself. Our <laughs> first time in person. I'll do a little yes. bit of applause too. Let's talk about what's going on. It's going to be an exciting week, I think, for all these conversations. But for me, rising above some of the really dramatic challenges that the world economy has faced in the last 12 months, collaboration in a time of fragmentation. And I think Ukraine is obviously at the core of that and the unity in Europe, but so too, again, the focus on climate change and the need to all work together. 
We've been hearing this word a lot, Julia, polycrisis, right? Right. But I think climate is really one of the major crises in terms of that polycrisis and all these other global emergencies we have. And today we heard from uh, the EU's Ursula von der Leyen, who talked about you can't ignore China. And I think if we're talking about cooperation in a fragmented world, the world's second largest economy is very much a central player right. in, this, in this globe. And she talked about other countries are doing a lot more investments, especially in clean tech and China leading that. And instead of trying to completely decouple from China for the EU, there has to be a level playing field. But China can teach the rest of the world a lot about in clean tech, such as solar panels and electric vehicles. And she also complained a little bit, quibbled, that China is attracting a lot of energy intensive companies by giving them subsidies, mm -hmm. promising low labor costs, very lax regulation. These are things that were on the top of her mind in her address this morning. Should we take a listen to a little bit of that? We should. This is actually uh, Asla von der Leyen talking specifically to the first lady of Ukraine, Elena, Elena Zelenska, who was here to give a special message. This is the EU's response. There will be no impunity for these Russian crimes. And my friends, there will be no let up in our steadfast support to Ukraine. From helping to restore power, heating and water, to preparing for the long-term effort of reconstruction. And Ukraine, obviously, the words of solidarity are going to be, again, crucial to the discussions that take place. But I think also, and it's tough, the realisation that everybody here recognising and acknowledging there's no end in sight. There's no obvious solution in this war. And, and that complicates the picture for everyone. Absolutely. We're just a month away from the one-year anniversary mm -hmm. since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I think in all the discussions you hear here from policymakers, from different global leaders, especially around the EU, there's a realization this is now a long-haul plan. Yeah. And how does Europe deal with the especially resulting energy crisis that this has led to? Yeah, and swift change has to come. Larry? We'll talk more. Great Absolutely. to have you with us. Thank you so much. Larry Madero there. All right, let's carry on. And with that, Ukraine's First Lady, Elena Zelensky, as you were hearing there, opening up the World Economic Forum with that stark warning, saying if Russia wins its war in Ukraine, quote, we are facing the collapse of the world as we know it. The First Lady also using her speech to draw attention to the Russian strike on Dnipro on that apartment building on Saturday. There is nothing off limits for Russia. As we speak in our city of Dnipro, people are still working and sorting through the debris of a residential area, of a house that was destroyed by an anti-ship missile. This missile was built to destroy aircraft carriers and was used against the civilian infrastructure. This morning, we heard about 43 casualties. Since we started this forum, it grew to 43 casualties. These ordinary people at home on a Saturday, and that's enough reason for Russia to kill. And CNN's Fred Pleitman joins us now from Dnipro. Fred, you know, I think the realisation, as you were probably just hearing there, is that this is in now for the long haul, that there isn't a solution in sight. And this isn't the first time to that the devastation of civilians being directly targeted in this war has taken place. How are things there? Hi there, Julia. Well, you're, first of all, you're absolutely right. It was very interesting to hear, to, uh, to, to listen to Ukraine's first lady there speaking because we can see so much of that on the ground here. She was talking about that very powerful missile that hit this building. In fact, we can get out of your way so you can actually see 
what that translates into. You can see that there is that gaping hole there now where that residential building used to stand. And again, what you're seeing there is the damage that was brought on. The Ukrainians say by one single missile that was designed to destroy aircraft carriers uh, with about a 2,000 pound warhead. So that's a lot of ordnance there. Oh, and we've been seeing over the past couple of days the carnage that, uh, that was caused by uh, by that missile uh, the ukrainians now say that the search and rescue operation has ended here on site so the death toll as you mentioned stands at around 44. Um, there were uh, four bodies that were pulled from the rubble earlier today including the body of a child so there are now four children that have been confirmed to have been killed uh, and the ukrainians now packing up but some of the some of the numbers that they've been giving us have been simply staggering considering that this was the work uh, they say of just one missile they say that they've cleared around 8,000. 500 tons of debris from here just in the last 72 hours. Uh, they had a little bit of a ceremony earlier to mark the end of the search and rescue operations where the rescuers themselves were honored and they themselves then also paid respect to the many victims, to the many uh, folks who were killed here, and of course also to the many people who were injured and who still remain in hospital. And one thing we have to point out as well, Julia, is that there are still a lot of people who are also missing. So certainly uh, that anger is very palpable and the grief as well as we still now see people coming here with flowers, laying down flowers, weeping, and just simply still you know, trying to come to terms with what transcended here, what happened here only three days ago, Julia. Fred, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Fred Plykin there joining us from Dnipro in Ukraine. In the meantime, China's vice premier has addressed the World Economic Forum after Beijing reported one of the weakest years of economic growth in decades. Liu He said opening up is one of the pillars of China's economic plans for 2023. We must always promote all-round opening up. Opening up as a basic state policy is a catalyst of reform and development in China and a key driver of economic progress. China's door to the outside world will only open wider. Mark Stewart joins us now from Hong Kong. Mark, you have to remind me what year we're in. Is this 2023 or is this 2017? This had odes of Xi Jinping here. What, all those years ago? I mean, I was looking at some of the comments here. This opening up is state policy as a catalyst for reform and development in China. It's going to be a key driver of economic progress. Some people think this is a planned economy, but it's, that's by no means possible, that we want to support the private sector. Wowzers. Uh, there is a lot to unpack here, Julia, uh, but let's just give the reality check of where we are in 2023. China has been under lockdown for a good two years. People did not move to or from China. We saw the impact of COVID on ports. So for all of those reasons combined, we saw a decline in GDP, no surprise. And now this big call to open things up again. You know, some economists are actually very optimistic that a more open China now will help revive things, despite maybe what we have been hearing from the central government. Another theme, though, I, I do want to touch on that was discussed earlier today was also the issue of China's aging population. 
people are choosing not to have children in China. Some families are getting married later. That impacts fertility. And this all has an economic side to things because having a child in China right now is very expensive. So when you have a society that has been basically under lockdown, you have a population that is getting older with no necessarily uh, no uh, no next generation workforce in the pipeline. For all of those reasons, there's reason why China wants to have people do commerce, open up its borders, so to speak, uh, because the challenges are just that significant right now. Yeah, it's such a great point, Mark. Sometimes I don't think you have any choice, particularly when the message, particularly from the private sector, has been you, you've made yourself virtually uninvestable. And when you've got growth rates like we saw in the past, what, several quarters, um, something's got to give. We'll see. Mark Stewart, thank you for joining us there from Hong Kong. Now, China, of course, at the core of discussions here about the outlook for global growth, the impact, of course, too, of U.S. curves on tech exports and what that means for the future and whether governments can work together to meet some of the biggest challenges we as a planet face. Coming up next, we'll be speaking to the CEO of one of the biggest chip makers in the world, the CEO of Intel, up next. Plus. The poor of this world are not just looking for aid and handouts. They're looking for investment. Oh, such a good point. A powerful message from Idris and Sabrina Alba calling on us to help people in the world's poorest nations help them help themselves. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to Davos. Some of the world's largest chip makers have announced major investments in the United States and beyond, of course, but this specifically following last year's Chips Act, the package passed amid a global chip shortage, aims to boost U.S. semiconductor manufacturing with more than $50 billion worth of government support. Leading U.S. chipmaker Intel is building a new $20 billion facility in Ohio and expanding factories in Arizona and New Mexico. But there is a big challenge, global economic slowdown and the prospect, of course, of recession too. Joining us now is Intel CEO Patrick Gelsinger. Great to have you hey, on the show as always. Thank you so always. much to be here. This is such a pleasure. I know. And what a beautiful Snow. place to do it. But a little bit cold. It is. But we're not worried about that. We're just glad to be back. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, of course, have talked many times on the show about the hopes for the Chips Act. Now, of course, it's done, but it sort of plays into one of the big themes here, which is short-term decision-making on what's right for the economy at this moment and for your business versus those long-term strategic decisions. Yeah. And that's true for you as everyone else. What are you thinking? What are you seeing in the numbers? Well, you know, it's a tough economic environment yeah. in the near term. You know, COVID in China, right? Ukraine and energy in Europe, you know, inflation in the U.S. Polycrisis. Yeah. And you look across that and say, where's the good news? Where's the growth market? You can't find it anywhere. So on the one hand, hey, we're having to make some austerity moves to manage costs in that environment. But at the same time, right, we need to make long-term investment. Three-quarter economic cycles cannot dictate five- and six-year capital investment cycles. Well, that's the wrong time zone. And if, hey, if I believe semiconductors doubles this decade, i got to make those investments now. You invest in a downturn. So we're, as I said in my last earnings call, it's hitting the brakes. 
and hitting the gas at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, doing that in this tough economic cycle, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a challenge to be a CEO these days. And obviously, as you said, some help from, you know, governments. We believe strongly in the public-private partnership benefits of the U.S. CHIPS Act, and we haven't quite seen the money yet. I was about <laughs> to ask you that. You know, because it's now in commerce's hands yeah. to do the final rulemaking for us to supp- uh, apply against those grants. We expect we'll see them this year, but uh, hey, I'm investing. Uh, <laughs> please Come show on, up with the money, the- right? Because we're assuming that those help us uh, make these massive investments. Gosh, there's so so much that I could pick up on in there. Um, you're saying three billion dollars worth of, of cost-cutting measures in 2025, up to ten billion dollars. Sorry, this year, up to ten billion dollars by 2025. Put that in context of the billions of dollars that you're saying, look, you have to spend because you have to focus yeah. on the longer term. Would it have perhaps been more cost cutting had you not been hopeful, having not yet received the support from governments, both in the EU, let's be clear, and the United States? You know, the cost cutting is largely driven by the economic cycle. Yeah, it is. Right. And, you know, that's the thing that we're having to right size our business. And at the same time, and obviously I'm almost two years now as a CEO, mm-hmm. when we took over, this was a period of rebuilding the company and then restructuring. And in some ways, you know, I sort of say, hey, this is causing us to do some of the things that we needed to do anyway just a little bit faster, yeah. right? You know, and good companies survive tough cycles. Great companies get better because of them. Invest and, into them. And, you know, I'm viewing this as, hey, this is just going to accelerate our transformation as a company, and I'm not backing away one bit on those long-term investments because, you know, hey, this is for the second half of the decade, and a couple of quarters of tough economic uh, picture, you know, that can't set a decade-long strategy. you got to invest into this cycle. We need the partnership with uh, government. And, of course, this rebalancing, the geographically balanced, resilient supply chains. If we've learned one thing through the COVID crisis and this multi-year journey that we've been on is we need resilience in our supply chains. Is it competitive rather than protectionist? Because that's been one of the warnings. I mean, you've got India now saying, hey, build a fab in India and we'll give you half the cost. You've got South Korea now giving big tax breaks. We've talked about the U.S. and Europe. I mean, you've always talked about rebalancing in terms of where these chips come from and where they're manufactured crucially. Are we sort of right-sizing geographically in terms of concentration through this process, or well, is it getting too competitive? The you know a little bit of competition, okay, that's fine. But the real message is geographically balanced. Yeah. And you know, if we were in U.S. and Europe in 1990, 80% of semiconductors were manufactured there. Mm. Today, 80% are manufactured in Asia, and few, very locations with extremely high concentration. This isn't okay, right? We've said, boy, the the U.S. never voted to get rid of the industry, but the Asian governments voted to get the industry. And now all everything about the U.S. Chips Act and the EU Chips Act is balancing, leveling that playing field, so that good investment decisions can be made. You know, and as we say, hey, if you're going to plunk twenty billion dollars into Ohio, right? Huge commitments on our part. You know, that take five years until we get the first penny of revenue. Yeah. I better be competitive with the world markets when I start producing, or that's not good for Ohio, not good for the U.S., and not good for us. They must be competitive, and that's everything that the Chips Act is about: is creating a level playing field to allow us to compete in the global markets and. The U.S. making the most significant industrial policy statement since World War II, mm. right? You know, we just think this is profound, and we're just thrilled that we played a part in getting that done. This is the point where you look at the uh, camera here and say to the U.S. government, show me the money. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> Commerce, Gina Romando, we're looking forward to this coming soon. 
you were just in Taiwan as well. I was just looking for the quote because it was quite poignant. You described Taiwan's place in the tech industry as precarious. The, you know, right now, right, you have so much of the companies, the supply chains, et cetera, going there, right? Yeah. And as we've said, boy, you know, the, you, you know, when you have so much concentration in one location, it's not good for anybody, right? You know, it's mm-hmm. small things become big things when that's the case. We need this geographically uh, balanced, resilient supply chains. And we have so many, you know, Taiwan is really the tech hub, right? We think of Silicon Valley that way, but Taiwan is such a, a jewel, an emerald of innovation, and now we need to have have this balance of, you know, even those companies say, boy, I need more balance in my supply chain. But it's also about the geopolitics. And we just had Liu He, the vice uh, premier of China, come here and say, opening up, it's sort of the strategy in 2023, reform, all those words that were sort of missing um, at the turn of the year. What's your thoughts on that? And and that comes back, I think, to the, the big questions here about whether we can globally come together to tackle things like climate change, pump money to emerging and developing markets mm-hmm. that are going to fuel the, the concentration, the bulk of the energy growth in the coming yep. years. Can we rise above? Well, clearly that's the message of WEF, right? And why, you know, coming here each year now for a number of years. It's why it gets criticized as well. Yeah, but, you know, the idea that, hey, we should have good dialogue. We're going to have differences. We're going to have competition, you know, different forms of government and perspectives. But dialogue brings about better answers. And that's why I've always appreciated this forum, because I'm not going to agree with you on everything, but we should talk about everything. And that's why this is so uh, powerful. You know, we believe in the power of that. You know, we're a global company. We have strong footprints in Europe. Uh, We're expanding here with our uh, German uh, project and our Israel and uh, Ireland facilities. Hey, I have huge business in uh, China, and we have positions in Vietnam, Malaysia, and China for me manufacturing. And of course, you know, we're a U.S. company with the heart of our R&D and manufacturing there. We're a global company and we need to have global dialogue. And that's the right way to attack the biggest problems that we have, you know, whether it's uh, climate change, whether it's energy issues, whether it's the globalization of the most critical resource to the future of the world. Where the oil reserves are, define mm. geopolitics for the last five decades. Where the technology supply chains are and where semiconductors are built is more important for the next five decades. Let's build them where we want them, Julie. Yeah, and that technology is going to define energy security as well. They're all connected to your point as well. Is that why then, very quickly, why you come to Davos? Because I'm going to ask everybody this year, like, <laughs> why do you come and brave the cold if it's held in the winter? Is it that? Yeah, it's that important to the world. And, you know, coming here to talk about the world's most important uh, projects. And, you know, clearly, I I always joke, I said, you know, it's a Byzantine conference center. It's miserable (laughs) to get here. The town is inadequate to host such an important meeting. But all the right people are here. That's why you come to Davos, because the right people are here. You're discussing the right in, the right topics in a global setting, right, for the world. And I truly, I'm an optimist about this. We will make the world a better place. And we believe in the power of technology to do that. Our motto, that we're going to work on technology that improves the life of every human on the planet. That's what Intel's about. And it matches the ethos of this place here at the World Economic Forum. Yeah, we hope to do better. And, of course, you come to see me. Absolutely. Obviously. Thank you. I forgot that. Patrick, great to chat to you. Thank Thank you. The CEO of Intel there. All right, coming up, a solid start to the year for global equities, but lots of concern about market volatility ahead. The CEO of BNY Mellon, the oldest bank in America and provider of investment services to clients all around the globe, gives us his take on the economic outlook and where the money's flowing. Robin Vince will be here right after this. Don't move a muscle and stay with CNN.
Welcome back to First Move Live from the World Economic Forum here in Davos. It's been a challenging earnings season so far for the major U.S. financial firms. Goldman Sachs today reporting a rare profit miss, with fourth quarter earnings falling significantly below expectations. Revenues also down some 16% as deal-making flows slowed. Goldman's also tripling its loan loss provisions too, an important indicator perhaps for the economic outlook. Morgan Stanley beating, however, on the top and bottom lines, thanks to strength in its wealth management business. But quarterly revenues, they're also falling, in this case, some 12%. All this adding to the corporate caution we're hearing here in Davos this year. The just-released study saying 73% of global CEOs see weaker economic growth ahead. The most pessimistic, in fact, that they've been in over a decade a financial services giant, BNY Mellon, America's oldest bank, in fact, has a unique perspective on the corporate mood globally and beyond. It has $44 trillion worth of assets under custody and or management or administration and almost $2 trillion under management for corporations and other powerful clients. They know where the money's flowing. Robin Vince is the president and CEO of BNY Mellon, and he joins us now. Fantastic to have you here on the show with us. It's great to be with you, Julia. Does that reflect your mood? How concerned are you about the economic outlook, and what are you seeing in terms of flows and numbers and thoughts? Well, certainly our data, and you're right to point out that we touch such a broad variety of financial instruments around the world. In fact, we touch 20% of all the world's investable assets across all of our platforms. It's sort of mind-blowing. Yeah, it's a, it's a very significant number. And one of the things that, that our data shows us is that there are certainly some trends that have evolved over the course of the past few weeks and months. So we had a lot of dollar strength over the course of 2022. And now we see signs that we could be seeing the dollar peaking in terms of its strength. We've also seen a lot of short of U.S. equities that has been the case through 2022. And some of that also seems to be abating a little bit. So there could be some evolutions uh, under the hood. We'll have to wait and see. So just um, for, for my audience here, just to understand what that's perhaps suggesting is we may have seen the lows in U.S. equities. We may have seen the peak in, in the U.S. dollar, just to get a sense. So, so it's, it's hard to call the top or the bottom of, of anything. We'd be doing different things <laughs> yes. if you definitely knew yes. the answer to those yeah. things. But the Fed is executing... Um, a tough mission yeah. to be able to really tamp down inflation in the U.S., all the while trying to keep the U.S. economy uh, on a reasonably level footing. And that's going to be a tough act for, for them to actually do. It's difficult to predict, I know, and that, that's not the business, but recessionary? Does it feel recessionary to you based on sort of data that you've collected in the past and, and how that correlates to the future outcomes that we've seen, particularly in light of rising interest rates, which is making life tougher for everybody, in addition to everything else that's going on in the world? Well, on rates, uh, our economists think that there's this possibility that we'll actually see slightly higher rates in the US than the market's currently pricing, maybe maybe 5%, maybe even slightly north of that, but also that we'll probably see rates last a little longer at those higher levels. We don't see the Fed cutting rates in 2023. But of course, all of this is super data dependent. I mean, right. we do touch all of these assets. We see what's happening with our clients. But our real job, we've been around for 238 years. We are, as you pointed out, America's yeah. oldest bank. We're helping our clients navigate through whatever the environment happens to be. I want to talk about workers too, because this is important for a couple of reasons. One, because you have said that, look, you're going to resize the business slightly. It's around 3%, I believe, of, of the workforce. And you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong there. I want you to give me some context on what that means relative to what you did or didn't do during the pandemic. Because I think this is also very important when you're talking about 
perhaps doing some adjustments in the business today? Yeah, well, we have a little over 50,000 employees worldwide, um, and we have a significant portion in the U.S., but we also are a global firm. 40% of our revenues actually come from outside of the Mm. U.S. And you're right that through the pandemic, with all of the uncertainty and the incredible investment in resilience that's so important in a firm like ours, we we held faith with our people and we really tried to avoid layoffs during that period of time. But one of the consequences of that was that even though we had a very solid year in 2022 navigating the uncertainty, our expenses grew a lot. And in fact, they grew over 5% in each of 21 and 2022. And so we really needed to make a commitment to bend the curve on that expense growth. And this is one of the difficult decisions that we've had to make in order to really put ourselves on the right footing for the next couple of years. Yeah, it's it's tough for the individuals involved. But I do think in light of the context of what didn't happen and the loss perhaps that you didn't take during that period, during the pandemic, it does put some perspective and shed different light, I think, on on what's going on, particularly in terms of recession risks and concerns today. Let's talk about BK shares, because what we often don't talk about, I think, and need to more, and it's certainly a subject that comes up every year here in Davos, is aligning incentives with workers in the business. This is about giving ownership of the business to, to, I think, just about every employee. Talk to me about how this works and why this was important for you in terms of the values, I think, of BMY Mellon. Sure. And it actually echoes with one of the themes of Davos this year, which is actually resilience. And so we took a look at our company and what we really wanted to do to try to drive our franchise forward for the benefits of our clients. And one of the things that we noticed was that we didn't feel that all of our employees felt fully vested as owners of the company because they weren't owners of the company but we wanted them to act like owners of the company and so what better way than to make them owners of the company and so we announced BK shares at the end of last year which was giving a giving a small number of shares to every single employee in the company so that they would feel like owners and then we could really drive the company forward together with that mentality. Yeah. A thousand years ago, I, I worked at a bank and uh, you certainly had to reach a, a significant level before you start to be given stock in the company. And certainly my judgment on this is that this does make a difference. And, um, and, and one, let me give you an anecdote around that, because somebody came up to me in the cafeteria just a couple of weeks ago and they said they weren't a stockholder before. They weren't a senior member. They were a junior member of the firm. And they said that as a result of that, they sat down. Uh, with their family around the kitchen table and they decided that they were going to actually approach investing in a slightly different way because we'd given them a a pathway to actually be able to do it. So the power isn't just giving people the stock, it's actually promoting a culture of stock ownership and everybody gets a brokerage account as a result of this initiative and so we also put people on that better journey and we're proud of that. I, um, it caught my attention, certainly. Um, something that you said in your own school, and I have to talk to you about this in light of, of recent events, um, was in addition to the custodian of assets, your sort of focus on future technologies and specifically digital ledger technology. So the blockchain part of what often comes under the umbrella of crypto, but crypto, and you and I have discussed this uh, sort of off air, is a small part of that. And you actually compared it to the shift from using paper sheets to technology and where would we be if we were still using paper today? You see power, influence, potential in blockchain, even if it's, it doesn't mean profitability or profits for the next several years. Explain. We, we do. Um, underlying digital assets is a very interesting technology, blockchain, as you said, and that powers the ability to tokenize assets, which is to take assets and to represent them in a more purely digital form. And we think that there's something there 
And over the course of the coming years, we think we're going to see some real opportunity and our clients look to us to help them navigate through that journey. And so we've been very clear, we are the world's largest custodian. We are a pioneer in real-time payments. We've been around for 238 years. We've seen through a lot of different evolutions of technology. And this is an important one, and we want to play it forward, and we think it's the right thing to do. So we're investing, but we may not get a return in the very short term. The message here, I think, is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, crypto is not the same thing as digital assets. As you point out, it's a subset of it. Some people are very, very enamored by crypto assets, but it's part of a broader opportunity. And it's that broader opportunity that we're focused on. We're going to come back to this conversation in the years to come. I know we are. Robin, great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Robin Vince there, the president and CEO of BNY Mellon Bank. A pleasure, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, and one of my favorite parts of the show, the celebrity power couple on a mission to heal the planet and help those in poverty, help those help themselves. Let's be clear, Idris Alba and his wife Sabrina joining us next. My job and actually doing a better job than me. No. Shall I do it? Every year, Davos plays host to major celebrities. You said it better. This year, Idris Alpha, Elba, and his wife, Sabrina Dare. Make sure I get it right. Dore. Dore are both in the spotlight. What a beginning, forgive me. And they're being recognised for a lot more than their sparkling careers across acting, producing, and a bit of modelling too. The couple who married in 2019 are dedicated conservationists. They're also Goodwill Ambassadors for the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development, or EFAD for short. And last night they were presented with the WEF Crystal Awards for their work on Monday. Idris highlighted those suffering from the effects of both food shortages and, of course, the impact of climate change, and that investment is better than aid. It takes stamina to to stay the course. To the businesses... Keep investing in mitigating climate change. As Sabrina said, please invest in small farms and the small to medium businesses that support. With greater access to finance, to markets, to resources, to technology, to knowledge and to people, we can define a different future. It's such an important message. And I completely messed up that introduction and I'm holding you entirely responsible. I I, I saw it there and I thought, I've got to read it. I've just got to do it. I know. I never stumble around like that. Congratulations. Welcome to First Move. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. And um, I would love to start with you, but I can't because I think we all fell a little bit in love with you yesterday when you gave your speech. And yeah, humbled, proud, grateful. Um, You're shining a light on incredibly important support, investment help, not aid yes, in great. parts of the world that we don't talk about enough. Yeah, yeah and, and that's what felt so great about it, I think, is to know that if our cause or our work was being championed, then what else was being championed was also the work that we were doing. And to be able to speak in a room with the people that were in that room and to have the platform that WEF provides to speak about the causes that we've been speaking about, you know, for the past couple of years and banging the drum for um, on that much of a public platform just means so much to us. And yeah. that was really the most humbling part, you know, 
the work speaks for itself, I think. Anyone mm. who, who is reaching out and trying to advocate against something they're passionate about, the work will speak for itself, and I think that's what I'm really taking home with me after that. Mm. I mean, I, the numbers speak for themselves. Yeah. $50 billion in co-financing and funding. This is loans and grants. This is helping people help themselves. 50% of recipients are women, which I know you both feel very strongly about, but mm-hmm. it's important to help women in these circumstances as well and, and building their businesses. I mean, yeah. to yeah. be part of something like this, to shine a light on these people is... Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's huge. And that's what's so great about it in the investment model is that, you know, you can, there's a time and place for aid and everyone needs the support, but it's right. generally short-sighted in the sense that once it's gone, it's gone. So investment, helping people have this sense of independence, and that's really what we're both passionate about. And also, we've got to get out of the crisis reaction model, right. you yeah. know. We've got yeah. to start future-proofing, and, and I think that's why we uh, sort of resonate with the practices of EFAD because they come in, offer solutions, and stay the course, and then go and replicate. And, and you know, it's a you know, each one teach one model. So for us, yes, Africa is ready for investment and partnership, strategic partnership. Uh, I think for, you know, investors, you know, um, mm. private sector, it's an incredible opportunity to consider Africa, to consider the youth there, the growth that's coming as a, a viable place to invest into. Particularly at these moments in time as well, I think everybody's in a way dealing with crises in their own country, whether it's yes. cost of yeah. living, whether it's inflation, we've got the war in Ukraine. And I think the danger is actually that people are so busy fighting crises in their own country and actually that the lack of representation from leadership of the G7 nations mm. at this time around sort of shows that people are sort of sorting their own issues out and making sure they get re-elected at home. And yeah. the danger is actually that, again, we, we forget the, the places in the world that we can help and there is a return to be had there. Profits can be made and businesses can grow and that's what I see in, in what EFAD what does. Even further than that, you know, during the pandemic, as we all know, the food shortages hit closer right. to home than we were all comfortable with, you know, yeah. and, you know, there's no way to, you know, uh, future proof that again without investing in the future. Right. You know, we, we look at investment as a short term cycle. We want our yields back very quickly, but we've got to think about it very longer term. You know, you're not investing in your lifespan. You're looking in your children's uh, lifespan, in your business's future's lifespan. You know, and it, it, you're right, it's not a welcoming you know, environment. People have issues at home. There is a food crisis, there is an energy crisis, there is a financial crisis. Why should we care? We should care because 80% of food comes from smallholder farmers. They go, we all starve. And that's a, that's a, a crude way of saying it, but it's true. Yeah, and the impact of climate change in these parts of the world as well. I mean, we talk about this in, in sort of grand schemes when we're yeah. here in Davos, but the impact on just one small farmer, and that accelerates and builds and builds, and that has a global impact. And on, it's on happening the now. It's, yeah. you know, what people are failing to understand in the global north. You know, we're looking at this as something that's coming, and it's coming, but um, it's on the continent. It's at the doorstep of people yeah. who are waking up to a reality of climate change. I mean, you have drought leading to famine, you know, and on top of that, there's conflict in a lot of these rural areas. They need adaptation investment today. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times we feel this message isn't being heard because it's being put to the back burner, and rightly so. There's lots of problems at home. It makes sense that governments are prioritizing communities at home, but if we don't do these things in parallel, 
you're only putting these problems on the back shelf for now and they will creep back up again. Yeah, and I know it's important to you both, not just as a couple, because you feel very strongly about doing this together, but also because of your family's heritage. I know you're on yeah. your father's side in Sierra Leone yeah. and, and Somalia as well for you too. So yeah. that must yeah. be also part of what's great about this is to, but, to sort of... But there's also good news, you know, like it's a real uh, motivator for young people, yeah. you know. Um, you know, farming isn't necessarily considered something that ki- sexy, young people cool. sexy yeah. cool. <laughs> totally. But you'd be surprised <laughs> that oh the, the, the startup industry in, in agriculture yeah. is impressive. Young people are looking at technology exactly. and, and, and figuring out ways to solve mm. problems. So there is a silver lining, you know, we're seeing a, a, a growing, especially on the African continent, there's yeah. a growing young populace and they want to work and they want to figure out solutions they're not looking for handouts so it's a really interesting space and i hope that through our work we can change the perception of people in rural areas because you know my mom always spoke about the pastoral lifestyle she had as one that was filled with beauty and and work and entrepreneurship and she felt proud of the work that her and her family did in those communities and Mm. we see young people leaving urban areas and and going back to rural areas because of hearing how successful their parents are in agriculture and that Mm. keeps us going that's amazing okay I'm never going to be forgiven if I don't mention a couple of things. I believe the last time you were here, you were DJing, and it was back in 2014. There's a connection here yes. to Coachella as well, which I believe you're playing as well this year. This is very exciting. Dallas is a little bit different. Yeah. This is a little bit different. I know, I know. I did The last time I was here, I was DJing. I think uh, Niles Rogers was here, and Mary J. Blige was here when I was DJing. It was, it was a while back. Um, and now I'm, you know, in a different space, you know. Um, same audience. Oh, oh, yes, look, we are. Oh, there we go. Is that me? Can really? you do that? Can you do that move again? That's really good. He's like, absolutely not. Yeah, but this is, this is, this is amazing. And Coachella? Yeah. Coachella is, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, it's my second time. I'm probably time. more excited <laughs> to watch do you, do you, is, is there input? Is I, there? He, no, he's very much so. I, Can you stay away from I don't from take requests. No, no, I don't take requests. Even from your wife? Well, Even from the boss? Sometimes I sneak in there. She sneaks on, yeah. Head, head bobbing or trying to press a button. But no, it's just so tempting because he, he is really having the time of his life. He, if you haven't seen Idris DJ, that's passion right no, there. I do, I do love it. I do love it. And I'm excited to go back to Coachella. I can't wait. You're in a great point in time, I think. Oh. Would uh, you agree? We feel very lucky. You know, receiving the award was a really nice highlight for both of us because it does sort of sort of give you that pat on the back, yeah. you know, good job and whatnot. But at the same time, we, I realise, you know, you know, celebrity advocacy can be polarising. Not everyone's into yeah. it and it can be distracting if it's done badly. But also, you know, an award like that gives us the sort of engine to, yeah, to keep going. You know, yeah. we've got something to say. Um, that, and we're not talking about something that everyone wants to talk about. You know, we're talking about something that uh, people want to sweep under the carpet. No one seemingly cares about uh, smallholder farmers, but we should. We really should. There's many ways to make a difference, I think, and you both are. Uh, Mrs. and Mr. Alba. (laughs) (laughs) Do you you want to read the twos? All right. So, Edison, Sabrina, thank you. Stay with us. More to come. You're going to get him to change his career. Losing my job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Welcome back, and sadly for you guys, it's me, not Idris. Anyway, trade is critical to our global economy and the well-being of billions of people worldwide. And those networks and delivery systems are also a vital tool for local businesses looking to expand and grow. 
And for one UK-based store owner, these networks have helped her family's coffee business thrive for generations. Eleni Jokos has the story in today's Global Connections. A tiny coffee shop in London packs a big punch. More than 80 different types of coffee beans line the shelves from every corner of the world. Places like India, El Salvador and Brazil, to name a few. This one is a Peruvian coffee, an organic Peruvian coffee. It's medium roasted. There's no right or wrong when it comes to coffee. Personally, if you find a coffee and you enjoy it, then it's right. The secret is to make sure that the espresso is good. And the milk isn't too hot. Marisa Crocetta and her family have been running the Algerian coffee stores based in London, Soho, for three generations. I've been working here probably my entire life since I could walk. The store first opened its doors in 1887 and got its name from its founder, an Algerian gentleman who immigrated to the UK. It was then bought by Marisa's grandfather in the 1940s. Its global network of coffee, tea and confectionery suppliers have kept the business flourishing for more than a century. Can I get two cappuccinos and a black coffee, please? Coffee lovers gather here from around the world and they come for more than just the global selection. Marisa says the store's house blends, which are made out of different types of beans and spices, are a big hit. This is a blend of Brazilian and African. This is a very popular coffee. We go through quite a few hundred kilos of this every week. These blends also allow the business to expand its customer base, even if they're thousands of miles away. According to figures released by the OEC, an online platform that simplifies international trade data, $346 million worth of coffee was exported from the UK in 2020, making it the 23rd largest exporter of coffee in the world. Marisa says her team can receive up to a couple of hundred orders a day. We've sent them to many of it an exotic place. The one that always rings true is we sent it to a gentleman and his address was literally Mr. Turtle Beach Mauritius. And that's it. And it gets to him. That was his address, Turtle Beach. Even after all these years, Marisa remains motivated to follow her grandfather's footsteps. This is, this is like our home. We don't, I don't even see it as work, I see it as like I said, my, my messy bedroom, it's, uh, <laughs> it's home to me. And that just about wraps up this first show from the snowy slopes of Daros. Don't worry, we'll be back tomorrow, though, and I can barely speak, actually, now that my mouth is so cold. But if you missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. That's it for me. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.